We are beginning a brand new series today. It's going to go for several weeks. It's called You Asked For It. And I'm going to tell you the reason it's called that is because we're going to answer questions that you have asked to be answered. These are, it's going to go at least three or four weeks, I know, and it may, I don't know, it's just the kind of questions I've been getting, praise God. All I can say is y'all need to be praying for me, praise God. Because y'all just, some of y'all just throwing, throwing me under the bus. Saying, okay, let's see if you can answer that one. But this is the fourth time we've done this in our 24-year history. Uh, so it's, it's pretty important. We do it about every three, four, five years. We first did it about 16, 17 years ago. Uh, but here's the thing. I believe if there's ever been a time that the church needs to be ready to give answers, it's today. Because how many would agree that we got a generation that if you're not able to answer what you believe and why you believe it, you're not going to be able to reach a generation that's searching for the truth. The old thing, see, old school, back in, back in the old days when I was a kid, it worked for most of the things. You just say, well, I just believe it because the Bible says it. But how many knows that don't work for this generation? You can't just look at somebody and say, well, the Bible says it, so I believe it. First of all, they're going to look at you and say, well, okay, where does it say it in the Bible? And how many know some of y'all just say, me too, uh, it's in the Bible, that's what the Bible says, but yet we have no clue how to tell them where it's in the Bible. And the truth is, a lot of stuff that we say is in the Bible is not even in the Bible. Am I preaching good already? But we got, we got some people with some questions. Remember that Radio Shack ad? You've got questions, we've got answers. Now, let me just say a couple of things. I'm going to spend a little bit more time today setting up this series. Uh, what I'm about to say, some ground rules and some things about how we're going to do this that I won't do in the, in the future weeks that we're teaching on this. I'll just hit them very quickly. But today I need you to fully understand a few things about why we do this. Let's start off with our, with our theme scripture that is a commandment to be able to have an answer. I like to read this from the King James Version, and then I'm going to re read it from the Amplified. I typically preach from the New King James Version, but I love how the King James says this. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Be ready always to give a what? Answer. Say it loud. Answer to every man that asketh you, what's not just a general question, but asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear. In other words, answer it humbly, but there you got to be ready to answer and give a reason for your hope. How many's got hope in Jesus? Amen. This is what the Amplified Bible says. Always be ready, I love this, to give a logical defense to anyone who asks you to account for the hope that is in you, but do it courteously and respectfully. How many of those, if, if somebody's asking you, well, do you think it's a sin what I'm doing? And you know the Word of God says it's a sin. You need to be able to show them lovingly and humbly what the Word of God says because they're asking you to give them the answer. But if you answer in a hellfire and brimstone judgment way, it, even if you're right, how many of those a lot of times they're not even going to hear what you got to say? So in other words, if you want to win the loss, the best way to win the loss, the best way to not win the loss is to walk around, just walk through Walmart and start screaming, y'all going to bust hell wide open. I mean, come on, how many knows you need to have a little bit more loving spirit. So a couple of things you need to know about this series, and these are very important. 
Number one, all questions have been submitted by you or people, maybe not in this service, but in another service. For the first time ever, because of technology, some of these questions have been submitted online. Uh, most of them are by people that attend here. Some of them are people that are connected to our ministry, um, that love us, and maybe some of them have even been a part of our ministry, but jobs have moved them on and so forth, and they watch us. Many are watching by live stream right now. First time ever we're on Facebook Live today. Come on, let's show some love for our Facebook crew today. Second thing you need to know is the questions are going to be answered randomly. This is not like a typical sermon that I like to build an outline where I'll start off with an idea and give you points and, and end. Uh, these are just random questions. Number three, look at your neighbor and tell them, beware. Okay, here's why you need to beware. Because some of these questions are going to be at the very least PG-13, okay? Uh, notice I didn't say R. I'm not going to give you the R-rated version. Although some of the questions are R-rated. Okay, just being real with y'all. I've got some R-rated questions that I've got to ask God to help me answer PG-13. Uh, but I'm giving you a warning. Those are not today. I'm giving you the warning today that they are coming. So prepare yourself to hear things in church you thought you'd never hear in church. Some questions that, I, that are being asked, I'm simply going to answer because I'm not a Bible expert. If I don't know, if I've searched and searched and searched and I can't find anything, I will say I can't find anything. But honestly, when it gets to that point, I'm going to say this is my opinion. How many of those one of the most freeing things in the world that you can learn how to say? If you've acti actively tried to find an answer to something and you can't find it and, and you're stumped, is to simply just say, you know what? I don't know. There are people all the time expect me as a pastor to understand everything that happens, especially the bad stuff that happens. They don't want me to explain the good stuff. They just want me to explain the bad stuff. Nobody ever comes to me and says, can you explain to me why I am so stinking blessed and highly favored? <laughs> no one ever says that. But they will say things, can you explain to me why my life stinks and nothing ever works out? But yet you said I'm blessed and highly favored. Said something about me being the head and not the tail. I think I'm the tail. Can you explain this? That's the kind of questions I get. Sometimes I just have to say, I don't know. I literally don't know. And I move on. If that's not good enough for you, too bad. Number five. This is something I've lived by in my life. I've said it a hundred times, and I've lived by it in my life. It's simply this. If the literal sense makes sense, then any other sense is nonsense. Come on. Some of y'all know. I said it so much, now y'all know it. Say it with me. If the literal sense makes sense, then any other sense is nonsense. In other words, here's what I mean. If, the bio, if somebody asks a question, which would be a, a silly question, but I'm just giving you an example. If somebody says, is it really a sin to steal? Okay, if that if that was a question, then I could literally look at the Bible and say, the Bible says thou shalt not steal. Right. How many knows that's the literal sense makes sense. I can't look at that and say, well, what I think what it meant was this. The author was implying to not steal, not to allow theft to be a matter of the heart. But as long you can steal something as long as it was not in your heart to steal it. See, now, now, how many, come on, can I get an amen? See, you understand, that's how people twist Scripture. If the Word of God says stealing is a sin, it's very clear that it is, then I don't need to add to that, right? So when I get a question that's very obvious, then I'm just going to give you Scripture, make a couple of comments, and move on, okay? And then the last thing I want to tell you is there's a few ground rules 
that I want to help you understand, not just for this series, but for your own life, anytime you've got to answer tough questions about the Bible and tough questions about life that people are asking you spiritual advice on, the number one thing, you may want to write this down on the back of your worship guide, it's very, very important. Number one thing is simply this, the Bible is the final authority. The Bible is the final authority. You are not the final authority. Your denomination is not the final authority. Your bishop is not the final authority. Your pastor is not the final authority. Can I get an amen? The Word of God is the final authority. So as we go through this, if the Bible speaks clearly on a subject, we will let you know. We will use the Scripture, explain, and then move on. If the Bible does not speak clearly on a subject, we will do our best to see if the Scripture alludes to it. Okay? So in other words, this has been the question that I've got at least twice in the four times we've done this. Is it a sin to smoke marijuana? Wacky weed, joint, Mary Jane, whatever you want to call it. I don't need to start saying names because I ain't got no clue. And don't y'all start helping me because you're going to tell on yourself. All right, now watch this. I'm not, I'm not answering that question now, but I'm just saying there's nowhere in Scripture where it says, Thou shalt not smoke a joint. So because it doesn't say that emphatically, then I would answer that question by saying, does the Word of God allude to anything, address things when, when we do things in our life that, that confuses us or, or confounds our judgment or maybe causes us to go down a pattern that, that will lead to other things that could be destructive in our life? And if we can find Scripture that, that speaks to that and it alludes to that situation, then we will answer it that way and then we will say, you know what, for the believer... Maybe these kind of things are something that we should avoid as a believer. That's, that's how we do that. If the Word of God does not even allude to the question, and we can't find anything that we could use as a, 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 to, to allude to it, then we will then answer that question morally. We will, we will look culturally and morally, and then I will always answer that type of answer by saying, this is my opinion. Okay, this is the gospel according to Larry. So when you when you hear me say that, that means this is what I believe. This is how I live my life. I'm giving you advice of why why I live my life and why I answer that question that way. Although I cannot support it biblically, this is the decision I've made for my life. Take it or leave it. Is that fair? Say amen. amen. All right. Without further ado, let's get into it. Number one, question number one. Ding, ding, ding. Is it a sin to use curse words? Uh-huh. We would say it in Alabama, is it a sin to cuss? How many of those everybody does a little cussing? It'll be all right. I mean, what you going to say when you hit your finger? I mean, my God, what are you going to do? Praise God. That's what I do. Thank you, Jesus. 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 But how many knows? let me start by saying, we are inundated in our society with foul language. It, has, it wasn't long ago that you watch television, especially regular television, not cable television, but regular television, in the evening hour, it had something called a family hour. You remember that? And then, of course, that family hour started getting, until finally it just was gone. But, but used to, there were certain shows that you could watch, and you could watch with your kids. And you can watch and not have to hear this stuff. But family hour's gone. Nowadays, it's in our music. It's in our, it's in our culture. It's in our movies. It's in our television program. 
Do you understand that they'll bleep certain words on regular television, but they don't even bleep GD anymore. You know, years ago, they determined, Hollywood determined, watch this, that these other words are considered offensive curse words, but GD is not considered an offensive or a curse word. And if you don't know what GD is, I ain't going to say it. Uh, it doesn't mean good deeds. But I want to answer this very quickly, and I'm going to move on. But I want to say this. The F word has taken over our society. So much so that if you watch a PG-13 PG movie, which used to, they were not allowed to have an F word in there. Then they passed. They could have one F word in the PG-13. Now, they say, depending on context, you can have up to three, no more than three. But you are permitted to just randomly have one, even if it's not in context. Have you ever been watching a PG-13 movie where it's a great movie, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they drop the F-bomb, and it's even, it's even silly and stupid. It doesn't even fit. You understand what I'm saying? And you look at yourself, why did they feel like that? Let me tell you why they did that. I read an article that said Hollywood took a survey of the college age uh, people, this was a few years ago, so they would, they would probably be in their 30s now, but I'm sure it's still the same. They, in the survey, said they did not consider a movie worthy to be uh, shared and invited their friends to watch it if it did not have the F word in it. They didn't feel like it was relevant and couldn't connect with the movie because they couldn't understand anybody for two hours talking without the F word, there was no way that they could, they could relate to that. So Hollywood started randomly injecting the F word into movies so that our culture can say, well, okay, they're sort of like me. How many knows this is pretty bad when, when people have to interject, inject certain words just to keep making money because it's become so much of our culture? It's quiet in here because you're taking it in. But let's look at what the Word of God says. Ephesians 4.29 says this. This is not my opinion. This is the Word of God. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace unto the hearers. Colossians 3.8 says, but now, talking to the believer, you yourselves are to put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Okay, so very quickly, I understand people say, well, it's just a word. What's wrong with a word? There's nothing in itself wrong with a word. It is not the word. It is the intent behind the word. How many of us, if I was to say, listen, all of us, we're going to bust hell wide open without Jesus Christ, but because of Jesus, we're not going to hell. We're going to heaven. Can I get an amen? You shot me down. But if I looked at y'all and said, you know what, I'm so frustrated with y'all, y'all could just all go to hell. How many of those? That's totally different, right? Totally different. Same word. Hell is the same word, but I changed it with my intention. Mm -hmm. My pastor a long time ago made, made, it, made it just shock me. I was sitting in a service, and he said, I'm going to tell you something right now. This is, it's a crying shame. That every day, after 2,000 years of the gospel being promoted all over the world, it's a crying shame that to this day the, the church has not been able to stop and, and interject the joy of the Lord in the gospel to stop people from going to hell. Every day, thousands upon thousands, every year, millions of people are going to hell 
And not one single person in this room even gives a damn. And he paused, and I was like, and he goes, but the saddest part of it all is that most of you are sitting there and cannot believe that I just said don't give a damn, and you're more concerned about that than you are about the millions that are dying and going to hell every day. So instead of sitting there thinking, oh my God, you're right, Pastor, you can't get away from the fact that I just said that. I'm not a cusser. I'm trying. I don't cuss in my life. I'm trying to show you the power of words. Other cultures, I gave this example in the first service. I won't break it down like I did in the first service. But I went to Canada on a mission trip. Some of the people in the church did as well. I went to Quebec. And, and our driver, who is a great man of God, so you you was in the car, Zane. I ain't laughed that hard. You know what I'm talking about. I ain't going to go there. But Zane is my proof he was in the car. Our driver, who's a great man of God, he just slipped up and used the F word. He's a great man of God. And I was like, I was in the front seat and there's in the back. We got on going down. I said, okay, you know, he's got that little dialect there. Maybe I misunderstood. In the next few minutes, he, he said the F word again. We're driving around talking about the power of God, man. And he's just used the F word in the middle of talking about the power of God. I was like, whoa, time out, man. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm hearing wrong, but did you just say what I think? What are you talking about? He's like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. That doesn't mean the same thing up here. He starts reading signs that people's painted the word. I was like, please. We was all like, stop saying that word. It's driving us insane. But it just means very. It means intense. It means all kinds of things. I said, that's so, it's so hard for us to understand. Because in our country, that is like the word of the words. And he said, and of course, you know, I... All my Canadian friends are going to think that I'm really blasphemous by I'm saying this. But just to give you an example of the difference of culture and the power of words, their equivalent of the F word, because of religious things in the past, they took anything that was holy and they turned it into, if you use that in a negative way, it becomes the ultimate curse word. So their F word is the word tabernacle. It sounds insane to us. We literally could not comprehend that. That was one of the most unforgettable rides in the car Zane was in that car with me that I have ever had in my life because we could not wrap our head around so you would see shirts where we, you would go buy shirts here and this day you see shirts that says F you on it their shirt said tabernacle you we were like what and we we so we we would because that's not a cuss word to us right how many of tabernacles the house of God it's not a curse word. So we would say, and our driver would be like, stop saying it. Please stop saying that word. It was unbelievable to us. It was one of the most incredible things ever. So really, I feel bad because even though I'm not cursing by saying that word in our language, I am literally saying the worst curse word ever in another place of the world. That if they're watching me from Quebec, they'll be like, I'm never going to that church. So here's the reality. Let's break it down for you. Is there, a word of, is there something in the Word of God that says it is a sin to mess up and let a cuss word fly? No, but I can tell you this. I just read that he said he doesn't want any corrupt communication coming out of your mouth. And in our culture, these are words that the world came up with. Most of them are to curse God. 
or to curse people who were created in the image of God. So what I want to tell you is you're going to hear me say this throughout this series is I think the church needs to stop working so hard in our efforts to be relevant, our efforts to be cool, that the only way we can do it is to lower our standards, talk like it, act like, and do the things of the world so that we can connect with them. I'm all about being cool and looking awesome. I don't know. Fifi, where's Fifi at? Is she in here? Fifi, where you at? She ain't here. Fifi told me, on our last mission trip, she, she, she's going to take me, give me some new clothes. She's going to make me look cool. I said, you going to give me some skinny jeans? She goes, uh, no. <laughs> That's wrong, John Line, Pastor. You ain't wearing no skinny jeans. But she's like, I, I want to be cool and relevant. So she's going she to help me. Me and Sandy are going to go where she's going to, well, y'all gonna, I'm going to come in here one day and I'm going to have holes in my jeans. I'm gonna, no, probably not. Probably not. Probably, y'all going to see my kneecaps and all this. I'm going to be cool, man. No, no. No, y'all don't see my kneecaps. Trust me. But what I'm saying, thanks, brother. I always count on you. <laughs> You've seen them. Yeah, yeah, you have seen them. I ain't going to say nothing about yours. That's all. Okay, I've, I've seen yours too. Kneecaps we're talking about. Um, so, whoo, man. Ain't going to tell them what's going to come out of my mouth today. Bring it down. Focus, Larry. Focus. So here's the thing. Why are you working so hard? Why is it that when you get mad... The first thing you have to do is sound like the world. Start training yourself when you get mad. I used to cut, I know, I mean, I cussed every other word because I was raised, I, I work construction. How many of those, it's almost a default for most people in construction to cuss. So when I got saved, how many of those, when you get saved, some of the old ways are still with you. So when I literally trained myself, when I would typically cuss, I would just start saying, thank you, Jesus. And I would literally walk around on the job, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. And, and people look at me and say, I know you ain't praising Jesus right now for what just happened. I'm praising Jesus. <laughs> and it helped me. Got to move on. All right. 12.06, if you're taking medicine, the buffet is still open. Number two, I told you this is very random. So you understand what I'm trying to say as I close that is the answer to that question is there's really no reason for a believer to be cursing especially in public, especially around other people, because it affects your ability to witness. The Bible says, come out from among them and be separate, okay? So try to work on it. I'm not judging you if you let them slip, but especially, especially, just ask yourself, why do you feel so compelled to curse in a status online? I mean, that's, that's, that's not you hitting your finger and slipping up and letting cuss away. That is premeditating, making sure that you let everybody hear you talk that way. So let's represent better. Are you with me? Say amen. amen. Question number two, and this is, this is a very sensitive one. If a person commits suicide, do they go to hell? If a person commits suicide, do they go to hell? And the, and the, parent, the parentheses in this question was, isn't it murder of yourself? So you may, some of you may obviously think, why was that even a question? But I can tell you, many of you were raised in an environment that your quick answer to that was, they go to hell. You were raised in that environment. First, here's one, one of the reasons. First John chapter 3, verse 15 says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderers have eternal life abiding in him. So that's just one. Of course, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not commit murder. So if you equate suicide with murder, 
of yourself, then that's one way of thinking. But before we go into that, let me just give you a few things about what we really need to, right now as the church, think about suicide. Suicide, believe it or not, is now the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. Okay? Each year, 44,965 Americans die by suicide. Watch this. One in 25 attempts will succeed. 123 people die of suicide every day, and this is one of the most shocking statistics. Among people from the ages of 15 to 34, suicide is now the second leading cause of death. Second leading cause of death. There were actually, believe it or not, seven suicides recorded in Scripture. Abimelech, Samson, Saul, Saul's armor-bearer, Ahithophel, Zimri, and Judas. Of these, Samson, Saul, and Judas are the most well-known. Judas, of course, hung himself, but Samson, of course, killed himself by asking God to give him strength to kill more Philistines in one day than he'd ever killed in his life. How many of those, we don't, we don't, we look at both of those stories two different ways, don't we? I mean, we, we look at Judas as, by God, he, he couldn't take it, he killed himself. We look at Samson as a hero. But both of them took their own lives, are you hearing me? And they knew what they were doing. So what you've got to understand about suicide is this. What is suicide? What is the definition, the true definition of, of suicide? If you define suicide as simply you took your own life and that's it, there's, there's no gray area, that's what suicide is, then that's one way of thinking. But can I tell you something, that's not a correct way of thinking because here, just taking your own life doesn't absolutely mean suicide. In, in the sense of how we negate that. Watch this. How many knows we, we read and we've seen, and maybe you even know some people like this. Maybe you serve with some people like this. But we hear of, of times of her, heroism, uh, of heroes in battle, when there's somebody throws a grenade right in the middle of a platoon, and without thinking, because there's such a great man of valor, at that moment, Jesus said, there's no greater love than a man laid in his life for his friend. He realizes, we're all going to die, or I can die, and save the rest of my men, and they jump on top of the grenade. How about the times where you hear tornadoes coming through, and, and debris is going everywhere, and a mama, and you're automatically going to say, well, she's a mama. Of course, she's just being a mama, but a mama looks at her kids and knows that if I don't lay on top of my kids, my kids are going to die. But I know that when I lay on top of my kids, I'm done. I'm not going to make it but my kids will make it. How many knows that we consider those acts, those people to be heroes? Right? But now, we would still consider that soldier a hero, but we would adjust our thinking just a little bit if we found out that the guy that jumped on top of the grenade and saved everybody, that morning received a letter from home from his wife or girlfriend that says, I don't love you anymore. I've never loved you. I'm in love with another man and I'm pregnant with his child. So when you come home, don't even call me. We're done. And he does the very same act. He's still a hero. Are y'all hearing me? He's still a hero. But how many knows our image of what caused him to do that changed? Both instances ended the same way. But one was motivated by a desire to save the lives of others. One was motivated by a desire to end his life because he felt like he had no hope. Are you with me, church? 
We understand what God's perfect will is for us. It's in John 10, 10. The thief comes not but to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So how many of God's will is that we live and not die. Right? God's will is for us to have hope. But many people don't have hope. Many people have lost hope. Because many people have been dropped and abused and broken by people that they trusted in love. I was taught as a young boy that everybody who commits suicide went straight to hell. I'm going to be very clear and straight to the point. I no longer believe that. Because in my opinion, I'm not saying that to give people a pass and a cop out. That's not to, for you to just, you know, think it's not a big deal. The wake of, the, of what is left behind is huge. But what I'm trying to tell you is this. When somebody gets to that point, we as a people, and even if we're family, most of us, if not all of us, do not know what's in that person's mind. There's mental illness involved there and sometimes, but sometimes we have no clue what brought it about. So the reality is this. I'm going to answer that question is this. My answer biblically is this. Uh, the grace of God is undeserved and unmerited favor. If the word of God tells us that we have no right to judge someone while they're alive, then we, when we can see them acting out right in front of us and we know what they've said and know what they've done and we don't have a right to, to judge that person, how in the world do we think we have a right to judge at the end of someone's life? Now here's the reality. The problem isn't that we need to focus so much on how someone is ending their life. It is that we as a church need to start praying that we'll be more sensitive to be able to see things coming so that we can actually be the hands and feet of Jesus and stop some of this from happening. Do you understand? We live in a culture now, when I was a kid, you know, you, you basically just had to isolate yourself and you would randomly hear, but now you're hearing it. Suicide it, rates are going up dramatically. You know why? Because people are going home with their problems and they're going, locking themselves in a room and they're getting on their phones and they're getting on their tablets and they're trying to share their hearts and their emotions online, looking for somebody to help them. And instead of somebody helping them, you got people saying, just kill yourself. Just go ahead and do it. People are so mean. And it's easy for them to be so mean and cruel behind a screen. A bunch of cowards is what I call them. And people, especially young people, are ending their lives because they feel like they've been convinced by the voices coming through technology that there is no hope for them. And then parents, because we've allowed, we've allowed phones and TVs and tablets to babysit our kids and our grandkids, and, and we have checked out of life, we wonder how in the world did this happen when they were screaming at us, there was attention all around us, people who were trying to get our attention, trying to get our focus, but we were so busy about making sure we didn't miss our show on Netflix, come on somebody, or, or whatever else is in our life, that we was having our girl time, our boy time, golf time, shopping time, that right around us, people were thinking, about ending their lives and then we ask your question how in the world did that happen i'm not trying to put all the responsibility on you either if you've experienced that in your life someone that you love i'm not saying that it was your fault that's not what i'm saying do not twist my words and say well pastor larry said it was my fault listen no that's not what i'm saying i'm saying as we go forward we need to focus on the life the old saying is give me roses while i'm alive we need to be more open to it so, but ultimately, when somebody dies, 
Where they go is not up to me. And where they go is not up to you. It's up to God. And of course, watch this. It's up to God, but it's up to that person too because the Bible very clearly says if you want to go to heaven, you've got to be born again, okay? So if they're born again and their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I do not have the power. I don't have an eraser in my hand. I cannot erase their name from the book. Are y'all hearing me? Okay, moving on. 14 minutes. Praise God. I'm going to get them out. I'm going to get at least one more out. Praise God. I'm supposed to do five. I only got four of the first service. Here's another one. Question number three. Y'all ready? What does the Bible say about interracial marriages? Woo! Slap your neighbor and tell my pastor ain't scared. Let me cut to the chase right now. It don't say anything about it. And it does not forbid it. But wait a minute, Pastor, don't the Bible say birds of a feather flock together? Uh, no. No, it doesn't. First of all, I've read the Bible several times. I don't know any part that rhymes. Okay? That should have been a clue to you right there. Birds of a feather flock together. It's not in the Bible. There's a lot of things people think is in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. But the Bible does, there is one thing that the Bible does forbid in marriage. Now, whether we agree with it or not, that's up to you. But here's what the Bible does forbid in marriage. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Come on, somebody. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawless and what communion has light with darkness? Come on. Some of y'all on that missionary dating thing. Y'all, y'all, y'all dating the heathen and y'all think God's called you to the heathen because you're going to win the heathen. Well, watch this. If that's the case, you better win the heathen before you say I do. Because if the heathen, come on, I'm trying to be funny here. But if, if the person who doesn't want Jesus Christ in their life doesn't want Jesus Christ in their life, while you're on fire for God and y'all are engaged, chances are they probably ain't going to do it once you get married. Because once you get married, because if you're a true believer... How can I say this without being PG-13 today? There's some things that you've been holding off on that when, when, they, when they finally get it, when they get married, and then they know they ain't going to change because everything they thought they was waiting to get, they got. Slap your neighbor and tell him he's preaching better than you shouting. It's ridiculous that people think that God in anywhere in Scripture forbids interracial marriages. He does not. In fact, one of the most famous people in all of Scripture, Moses, who God spoke with face to face and gave the Ten Commandments, married an Ethiopian woman. Can I, is this microphone working? Now, Moses wasn't no white boy, okay? But he wasn't black either. Some folks think, well, he wasn't black. He's Jew, okay? Jew got sort of olive skin. But watch this. Ethiopians didn't used to be white. Even in that time, the Ethiopians was black. How many of those races, colors of skin, was colors of skin back then? So guess what? We got a, a white-looking dude, praise God, even though he wasn't a white boy, he's a white-looking dude, married, uh, I don't want to call her African-American, she's a black Ethiopian woman, praise God. They got married, and God said it was good. That's silly, silly that people use the Word of God to try to separate races. Oh, I'm about to preach y'all whether you like it or not. I told y'all I ain't scared. The only reason the Bible told them not to intermarry with other nations had nothing to do with race or color of skin. It was all about religious practices and culture that he did not want impacting his people. 
Every single time they married into another nation for whatever crazy, stupid reason, this is why you shouldn't try to missionary date, is the greatest kings of all, the wisest man to ever live, Solomon, ended up marrying into other cultures and began to worship their gods and set up temples for his wives. How crazy are you anyway to marry a hundred women? Nothing against you women, I love you, but man, I, I can barely take one. Amen. Y'all probably say the same about us. I figured I'd get some ladies shouting me down. Now watch this. You may be shocked to find out that the Bible does not even talk one time about race. Not one time. You say, well, wait a minute now. See, let me tell you something about race. God's word speaks about nations, speaks about ethnic groups, but not race. The Jewish people have always been a mixture of many races. You, you could be converted to a Jewish person and become a Jew, regardless of your nationality. One of the greatest Jewish churches in the world is in Ethiopia. So, so, I mean, it's, it's literally the priesthood operates in Ethiopia. So it has nothing to do with the skin color that makes someone a Jew. What makes someone a Jew is your belief system. How many knows we have multiple races in here, but how many knows in the world what the world calls races, but we are all children of God in the same church called Christianity. Now listen to this. God doesn't talk about black and white people. And let me back up and say, isn't it crazy that when you talk about the word race, we automatically think we're only talking about black and white people? How many of those there's more races than black and white folks? Huh? In fact, the truth be known, we all got a little bit of every one of us in us. And y'all don't want to go back and trace your stuff, but go back and trace your stuff and you'll find out. Even the biggest racists in the world, they don't, want, they don't want to go to Ancestry.com. The racists do not want to get that DNA check. Because somewhere down the line, baby, the one they hate, mama or daddy hooked up with. See, see y'all might think that I'm white, but if y'all ain't figured it out by now, this just happens to be the pigment on the outside, brother. I am not a white boy. Huh? Somebody say amen. amen. Do you know when race came into play? Race was invented by humanity. Race was a human invention. Because if that was the case, if God created, watch, this, watch how you make, use your words. If God created races, then that would mean that God divided and made some people more important than other people. Race has nothing to do with ethnic and culture. Do you understand? You can, you can live in any country and be born again, marry somebody in another country, and when the two become one, how many of those, if you've got two people from two different races, two different skin colors, in the eyes of God, the Bible says, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave him to his wife, and the two shall become one. So even in the concept of marriage, God is saying 
there's no separation. Husband and wife are one. They're one person. Not a black person, a white person, a Hispanic person, an Asian person, Native American person. Come on, somebody, you hear me? They are one race. Therefore, that's why the Bible says we are all children of God. We may have different uh, pigment colors of our skin, but that the only one that separates us based on our skin is us, not God. So the answer to the question is emphatically, the Bible does not forbid interracial marriage. I didn't ask you if you liked it. I just told you what the Bible said. And by the way, if you come to Solid Rock Church, you probably need to like it. Come on, somebody. Hey! Come on! Somebody, come on! You might as well just go ahead and like it. Because if you're trying to separate the races on any reason, what, not just marriage, but if you have a racial argument and you're trying to use anything, number one, but especially the Word of God to support your argument, your words are demonic. I don't think y'all heard me. I said you are being led by the devil and your words are demonic. My last thing, can I get it out in five minutes? How many give me five minutes? Five minutes, five, 10, 15, 20. I love the fact that we have visitors and new people that don't know my stuff. God, thank you, sister. Got two up, baby. I got, I got two up in a leg. I'll, get, I'll, just, I'll, I'll just get one more question. Number four. Here's a big one. What is the unpardonable sin? Whoa. Got quiet. Based on... Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 through 32. So I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Son of God can be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Here's the key, either in this world or in the world to come. We've all heard the stories, or if you, especially if you're raised in church, you heard the stories of people sitting in service, gripped on the pew, and the preacher's calling for and the Holy Spirit is drawing them, and they're saying, no, no, I don't believe in you, God, I don't believe in you, I reject you, God, I reject you, God. And boom, they were turned over to a reprobate mind, because that's what Romans talks about, a reprobate mind. And all of a sudden, they scream out, ah! Like, what is it? What is it? What just happened? I just felt the Holy Spirit leave me. They walked out rejected. They walked out depressed. They, they never showed any emotion anymore. They, it was very obvious. And they'll even tell you that they have committed the unpardonable sin. I wrote an article about that online. You can find it at www.pfft.com. I have so many scriptures to blow that out of the water. All I need is one. Romans 10, 13 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I know what your argument is going to be. Yeah, but to the reprobate mind, to those that have committed the unpardonable sin, they're not going to call upon the name of the Lord. They have no desire to call upon the name of the Lord. Do you know what you are saying when you say that? You are saying, this is, this is how you have rewritten Christianity. When you say that there are human beings, even let's just say one. That there is one person on this planet who is beyond forgiveness, who has done something, said something, whatever this thing is called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, whatever it is, they've done it. And because they've done it, 
There is no forgiveness for them. Yet they're still walking around here on this earth. You have, you have rewrote these words. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. Amen. Dot, dot, dot. Except for those people who made fun of my spirit, mocked my spirit, pretended to speak in tongues, told me they hated me, rejected me, fill in the blank. They hated the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is finished for everyone except them. Do you see the silliness of that? Can I tell you that it's not biblical? Grace is not. You are making a statement, interpreting Scripture through the filter of religion. Religion by itself, by default, judges people to hell. Wants you to do something, act a certain way, be a certain way in order to be forgiven. It has nothing to do with you, has nothing to do with your church, has nothing to do with your denomination or your pastor or your preacher. It has everything to do with the shed blood of Jesus Christ on that cross. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That's how we're saved. I told this story in the first service, and I'll end with this, with this and, I'll, and I'll give this one last point, is this. I, I remember a family many, many, many years ago asked me to go pray for a loved one of theirs. He was in his late 80s, 88, 89, something like that. All his life, his entire life, they had re, he had rejected God. He had told them, I don't want your God, I don't believe in your God. Bitter would tell them, I don't believe, leave me alone. Well, he was at the end of his life. He was in a coma. And the last words that they heard him say is, I do not want your God. So I'm on the elevator. Can you imagine? I've never met this man. I have no idea. To this day, I can't even tell you his name. I can't even, I can't even tell you. I can't even remember the family. I can't even, I can't even remember that you might have been the family. I, I can't even remember who the family was. I just remember this event. I was going up in the elevator, and I was saying to God, God, because I'd heard the story, the backstory, I said, what am I going to say to a man and to a family to encourage them that they are saying he is going to die today? He is in a coma, unresponsive. The last words they heard him say was rejecting God. What am I to do? So in my mind, I planned on I'm going to pray for the family. I'm going to try to encourage them that God can help them in this time because there's nothing I can do for him. And God spoke these words. Is he still breathing? I'll never forget that. I'll never forget God say, when you walk in the room, just check and see if he's still breathing. And I walked in the room, and they're all crying, they're weeping. I said, is he still breathing? They said, yeah, but he's in a complete coma. He's, he won't, he, his body won't respond. He, we don't think he's even hearing us. And I walked over to him, put my mouth right up against his ears, and I said, you don't know me. My name is Larry Rack, and I'm a pastor. And I've been sent here to pray for you. And they've told me how you have always felt about God. But I want you to know that God just told me to tell you that if you're ready to pray that prayer, even at the end of your life, no matter what you've said or done, you can pray that prayer and be forgiven today. And you can know that when you go to heaven, your family will be able to see you again one day. He, not any response whatsoever. Just laid there mouth sunk back in you know how it is when you're at the end just look like death i said if you can hear me and you can understand what i just said squeeze my hand with his family standing there 
they saw him squeeze my hand. I, I'm telling you, it's happened. I said, well, I know you can't talk, but I'm going to pray this prayer. And as I'm praying this prayer, inside of you, if you can hear me and understand me, as I'm praying this, if you are praying it with me, squeeze my hand while I'm praying. I grabbed his hand. I was putting it in his, real simple. I just said, Jesus, I believe that what you did for me was more than enough. Jesus, you died for me on the cross. No matter what I've done, no matter what I've said, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins and come into my heart right now and save me. Even at the end, save me, God. The whole time I was praying that prayer, he just squeezed my hand. Squeezed my hand. And at the end of that prayer, he opened his eyes. He didn't say a word, but he opened his eyes and looked at his face. It was almost like God not only needed that family to see him squeezing my hand, but he needed to see his family one more time. He never said a word. He closed his eyes again. I went to them and I said, do you understand what just happened? I said, everything that you have prayed and every seed that you have ever planted, you could have given up. But at the very end, it looked like, listen, if there was a man who would be judged as not forgiven in this world and in the world to come, it would have been that man. Every bad thing you could have said about God, he said about God. But in his dying breath, his name got put in the same book that mine's in. Come on, give him praise. I don't care if you think it's fair. Grace ain't fair. fair. God is not a fair God. There's a difference between being a fair God and a just God. A fair, fair means you get what you deserve. Aren't you glad you don't get what you deserve? So what's the answer to the question then? What is blasphemy against the Holy Ghost? What is the unpardonable sin? Here's the only way. See, religion is man's way of taking something simple and making it difficult. Because man wants you to walk through ritualistic acts so that you can impress them so that they can splash some holy oil on you and say, you're blessed. Jesus did away with all that. He just said, here's how you are born again. You've come through me. Did Jesus not say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to what? The Father except through me. Right? So here's the reality. You don't have to be in a church to get saved. You, you can be on a golf course. You can be at much as. Be careful with those words, though, because some of y'all turn that into saying you have church on the golf course every week. You need to go to church. But you can be, you can be on the lake. You can be at work. You can be digging a ditch. You can be driving down the road in a car. Because the act is you go to Jesus. But here's the thing. The only thing that you've got to remember is this. Jesus said, him, his, the same one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man gets the Father but by me, also said, the Word of God, I want to get the Scripture right. It says in John 16, verses 8 and 9, you can go back and read it later, John chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, it says, no man is saved, no man comes to me unless he is first drawn by the Spirit. So here we have the Godhead, three existing but one God. But teach us the proper way to approach the Father. We, we can't get to the Father except through Jesus, right? Ain't that what he said? But Jesus said, you can't get to me unless you come through the Holy Spirit. 
So every person who has ever been born again, whether it was in a church service, a tent revival, on the side of a road, on a, a co-worker, was drawn by the Spirit of God. Not drawn by Jesus. Drawn by the Spirit of God to Jesus. Je the Word of God even says, the Holy Spirit will not even speak of Himself. He will only speak of Jesus. So has many roles. Holy Spirit has many roles here on this earth. We know that. Gifts of the Spirit operating, fruits of the Spirit operating. But I'm telling you, his main objective here is to draw people out of the world in which they're living to Jesus Christ. So that's what we call conviction. That's what we call, you feel that? You feel that? How many ever felt the Holy Spirit dealing with your heart? So Jesus says, that's how you get to me. But when you reject the Holy Spirit, you can't get to me. And if you can't get to me, you can't be forgiven. For the same book that said, Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the thing. You don't have to believe me. I will close by saying this is my opinion. But I weigh my opinion with scripture i weigh my opinion with three words it is finished no dot 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 afterwards i weigh my opinion with scripture after scripture after scripture that teaches us that he did what he had to do for any human being to ever be saved so if you die and you breathe your last breath rejecting the holy spirit's drawing you can't be saved in this world nor in the world to come so a long time ago this is the gospel according to larry i began to walk out that the only unforgivable sin the only unpardonable sin the blasphemy against the holy spirit is for a human being to spend his whole life rejecting the holy spirit and even at his last breath, rejecting the Holy Spirit. Because you can't be born again in the spirit realm after you're gone. It's over then. It's pointing to man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. That's what the Word of God says. So, it just made sense to me. It lined up with, it is finished. That if this is the line of eternity, and on this side is the natural, and on this side is eternity, and I'm right at the edge... And Holy Spirit is dealing with me, and I've all my life I've rejected Him, and I cross over into this area. Watch this. I'm gone from that area. I'm gone from the natural. So there is no way for me to be forgiven in that world or in the eternal world to come. I think, I think the, the whole Holy Spirit leaving somebody and there's no hope for them was religion's way of creating an interpretation to give up on people. To feel better about themselves and say, well, you know what, I did all I could do, but it's fairly obvious. They've committed the unpardonable sin. So, so you take the weight off of yourself. But God said, if there's breath in their body, your job is to show them me. So there'll be no cop-out in this house. 
I don't care what you look like, what you talk like, what you smoked up, drank up, shot up, who you slept with last night, what you did at the club. There's nobody too bad and too sinful for the grace of God. Amen. Amen. And you got to ask yourself, if you're, if, you're, if you're adamantly inside of me right now fighting everything I just said, because that ain't what you were taught, I'm not trying to judge you, but I am asking you to ask yourself why you are so adamantly determined to make sure that you have the right to give a death sentence to someone. If somebody's committed an apartment sin, there's no hope for them. The devil knows that, right? So there's no consequences, right? They're going to hell regardless. So all those people ought to be the worst people that's ever existed. And some of them, you know, some people have probably said, well, they are. But a lot of people that's been judged that way are just depressed people. It's a cop-out on the church. And we're not going to take the easy route here. We're going to love people where they're at no matter what they've done.